Okay. I really hate being late, and I know Lorata hates it as much as, as I do. And we both, um, we're both, well, I'm an ex Josie girl right now. <laughs> Lorata's a Joba girl, and this was killing us. We've parked on a yellow line. We know we're getting a fine, and we've gone, okay. So that's fine. Um, so, really, really sorry for being late. It wasn't our plan to be, but thank you for coming. Hello, darling. Hi, Mel. <laughs> I put my shoes on in the loo. She had to run with the yellow ones. It was quite a sight. <laughs> um, so I want to talk to you quickly about how I know Lorato. Um, the two of us worked together on a publication called True Love Magazine, uh, one of the oldest and one of the once most successful um, women's magazines in this country. Lorato was my editor and I was her features editor. And um, we had an amazing time working together until the day I wrote off a three and a half million rand Ferrari while I was test driving it uh, for the magazine. And then of course, being Media 24, um, you know, disciplinaries and all those kinds of things were in order. And suddenly Lorato was dragged into a battle against me as my editor. But amazingly, we still stayed friends, which, often, which doesn't often happen when your boss is kind of your enemy because that's kind of what happens in these big corporations. So we, our history goes back a very long, long time. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of you for having written this book. But it was in July last year. Yes. Gee whiz, it's, it's almost a year. I woke up on a Monday morning and I had a barrage of WhatsApps from mutual friends and mutual colleagues of ours. And all of them were going, what's, what's happened to Lorato? Has she gone crazy? Have you seen the Sunday Times? What's going on with Lorato? And I, firstly, I thought she had been in an accident when you hear what's going on with Lorato. So I quickly went on Twitter. Okay. And Twitter was like a flame with this book that had come out. And they were lambasting, especially black Twitter, because you know there's white Twitter and black Twitter. Black Twitter was going mental. And calling my friend and ex-boss the most terrible things. So I quickly went um, and went online, looked at the Sunday Times, and this big header, let me get it right, um, it was all over the place, and it said, let me get the, uh, exactly why I hire blue eyes not black guys and there was this like cartoon with the illustration and I read this headline why I hire blue eyes not black guys and I actually thought Lorato has gone mental why on earth in South Africa in 2016 would you want to uh, can you hear me I did study drama so I can shout um, okay why would you go and put a headline like that to try and um, give publicity to your book. The thing was, it wasn't her headline, because I did have the book. And I quickly, furiously went for this chapter, why I hire blue guys, not black guys, and I couldn't find it. Kind of started making sense to me that the Sunday Times had created their own very sensational headline. And, but then, I mean, it wasn't just a week, it wasn't just a day, mm. it went on for a very long time, from Lorato being called the biggest black sellout, uh, the response was 
really hectic. The self-hating hatchet job of the year, the book was called. Black people, please do not bother buying this book. Your black card, Lorato, has been revoked. Okay. Uh, we as black people keep getting thrown under the bus. Your book does exactly that. So, I mean, there were many, and I only t chose four. And those this were morning. the nice ones. Okay. <laughs> so, I've spoken a hell of a lot already. Um, the thing was, I, you know, as a fellow writer, as a publisher as well, my heart just went, and as, my, as your friend, my heart just went out to you because I know you, and I know none of these things are in your heart or none of these things were intended with the book. But just walk us through a little bit that initial complete lambasting of you. What actually happened in your world? Okay, so th thanks, Mel. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah. you. And, and once again, uh, apologies that we're late. Uh, we would have ended up in a lovely guest house, uh, <laughs> but not very useful. <clears throat> um, so, the the uh, how many of you have read the book? So we can contextualize the chapter. Oh, Munir is here. My friend is here. <laughs> um, okay, so the chapter was about how, as black people, and I include Indian and colored people in this, we often want to help our families when we do better by uh, renovating our parents' houses or, uh, or, or extending a certain wing of the house. But usually because of financial constraints, we cannot afford to get the architect and the designer and this and this. So we sort of get the guy who works with a guy who works with a guy to come in and do the thing, which is why you'll find a lot of houses in a lot of townships across South Africa, whether you're in Mitchell's Plain or Guamashu and so where to that are sort of half finished or unfinished um, because we didn't get the professionals and then we didn't pay the money. And what I was saying was because I had chosen to, to be cheap, and a lot of the book, Mel, is, is about me. There's a lot of exposing of my own self as well, um, and I'll tell you why. But so that's what happened, and I said, look, I'm not gonna hire you just cause you're cheaper and cause you're black. I'm gonna hire you cause you can do the job. Um, and that until we can be serious as business people, as black people, and as I said, I include Indian and color people here, then I don't want to lose money, because that's what I was doing. I was hemorrhaging money uh, under these false pretenses of like supporting uh, black business. And what you need to do is support black businesses that are proper, that have invoicing, that, that run their business properly. Um, and I didn't want to mollycoddle black people. I didn't want to say, oh, it's been so tough, so it's okay if you mess up. I don't want to do that. I wanted to be completely honest about what we're getting wrong. Because in the book, I am very honest about the things that I've gotten wrong in my own life. There was no way I could be honest about South Africa without being honest about myself. So whether I'm talking about my fear of uh, waxing my nether, my nether regions, which you know about Mel, or, um, or it's about my own sort of uh, self, but, um, just unhappiness with myself as uh, uh, when I was overweight, you know what I mean? So I needed to be honest about myself so I could be honest about the country. So that's what happened. And it was a, it was a strange time because like, 
everybody talks about this. A lot of my book is, is about things that people talk about. And every, I can tell you, black people talk about this all the time. Like, oh my God, he didn't pitch up. He wasn't on time. Okay, today doesn't count. He wasn't on time. And uh, there was no invoice in the left without the thing. These are things, what I wanted to do with this book was take secret conversations and put them out there so we could actually have a conversation. But I wasn't aware that when you tell the truth, it's going to elicit it's, this it kind of people. I mean, what kind of seemed to happen was that even though people could, in their own safety of their homes or at a restaurant, say, God, that guy was so bad, and, and amongst black people, as soon as you criticized your own people, you suddenly became this huge traitor. Yeah, I did. And one of uh, the SABC journalists said, I went to great pains to show that not all white people are racist. And I was like, mm, I don't know, because... <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm black, and so that's my vantage point with the book. I mean, you, know? you called the book the way I see it, which yeah. I think was probably your get-out clause. I mean, I'm sure you were like sitting <laughs> oh when you were going through the book and saying, well, it's just what I think. But suddenly you were talking on behalf of every black South African in South Africa. And it, how, I mean, that was not what you were trying to do. No, I mean, uh, the other thing, Mel, though, that I have to talk about was that that's not what I thought when my friends read parts of the book. They were like, oh my God, white people are going to be so angry with you, you know? Because I talk about language and class and, and white privilege and black pain. And yet, nobody even talked about this stuff. Like, that wasn't even touched on. It ended up being me against black people, which was really interesting. And people wanted me to take my words back. And because I'm a trained journalist, I've been working uh, since I was 19 years old. I turned 37 last week. And I. Happy I was, thank you, thank you, my friend. And I just don't, I, I, I don't want to take back my words, or else I wouldn't have written the book. The intention of it was to say, if we're going to talk about privately, talk about it privately, we should talk about it openly, because what has talking about privately brought us in this country? There's, we, we haven't moved forward in, in any way, because we're not talking about the things we don't understand about each other. And you have to understand in a place that was a separatist place, that's what this country is. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And the only way you can understand me and I can understand you is if all these preconceived ideas that you had about me are brought out. Then I can say it's unfounded or yes, it's true. But what we're doing now is acting like we don't have problems when we do have problems. But now, do you think that that Sunday paper kind of sold you down the line by, by, by headlining it pretty kind of, it was a very sensational headline. Yeah, I mean, look, in, in a sense, I understand why they did, because I was very, you know, I, I, I sat on the, um, I was one of those people that overlooks the book awards, the Sunday Times Olympian book awards. And so I kind of know the inner workings. And when I start the book, I'm kind of like, yeah, well, my book will never make it on there, whatever. So it's not surprising that that, that, that happened. But maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing because I, I hope that um, people w will start to be more professional, that they'll think of me. Um, when they're not wanting to answer their phones or whatever. But the sad part is, is that it was never my intention to, to do that. To do that yeah. But I mean, you 
um, the book is done really well, mm, which no. means that the, the old adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity really is a, a, a which case I in never point. believed until my book. I never yeah. believed. I was like, oh, that's cock. That's I old. had that feeling that this might actually break you. I mean, never mind emotionally, but that there might just be this huge, huge backlash because it was really getting quite hectic at one time. Yeah, I mean, but it didn't do that. It actually. A lot of black people have bought the book. A lot of white people have bought the book. The mm. book, I think, has been quite a, a mixed buyership. Which was what I was hoping for. Which you, was what you were hoping for. But what I still want to know is, how did you like wake up in that week and what was going on in your head? Because I know you, <laughs> I know you, and you're a, you're a fish. I am. <laughs> you're I am. Pisces. Yeah, very Pisces sensitive. get very sensitive. Sorry if I'm not looking at any of you. I'm sure there are a few Pisces that make me turn <laughs> my head. But I know you're a sensitive soul and you've got your good armor out there, but it must have been very, very difficult. It was. It was uh, difficult. You know, like, I, I think the universe is, a, is an interesting place. I was basically, for as long as Mel has known me, I was like single for 10 years. Uh, it doesn't mean I didn't get laid. Don't make that mistake. I talk about it in the book. I was getting laid. I just didn't have a boyfriend that I showed my mother to. <laughs> and um, I was quite alone for many times. I devoted my life to work. Uh, that's what you and I have in common. Mm. And just before the book came out, I started a relationship. And on the day of the Twitter thing, I was in bed. Languishing with my boyfriend, who Munir knows. Oh, and at two o'clock, we're like, oh, I'm hungry. And we woke up, and I had like a hundred messages. And so, so the universe equalizes it. It gives you a support system. Mm. It gives you this wonderful person who takes you away from that noise. And it's just a wonderful, and, and I surrounded myself with, with great people who, and I told everybody before the book came out, I said, do not defend me in public. You did not write these words. Do not do that. And what I did is that I went to radio stations and all these places, and I would come home to him, and he'd pour me a glass of wine, and I'd lay on his you know, um, uh, chest, and I'd, and, and I'd feel safe. And my mother would call me. Look, the, people, a lot of people were worried about my safety because of what people were saying. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of sort of um, very hectic things yeah. uh, uh, about rape and all these things that were directed towards me. So my mom was very worried about my safety. But I never was. You know, I come from the, one of the hardest neighborhoods in Soweto. So I really, to be blunt, couldn't give a shit. I mean, on the first day, I went and sat at Starbucks by my own. And I thought, and I sat where people could see me. Because I thought, what you want? You have something to say? Because all of us are brave when we're carrying our phones, but mm. we never directly. And this is a very confrontational book, very confrontational. Um, so that's how I went through it, but it was hard. And I took a lot of sort of tranquilizers at the time. You say, yeah, I'm trying, now, as you mentioned, um, the, the social media thing, I actually thought, well, this is time to bring that up. Because yes. I was going to read a whole lot of um, that chapter where she talks about um, the work ethics of her black fellow countrymen. But I think you can read that. We kind of can move on to something else now. I mean, the thing that um, I think because the book, that, that chapter, chapter nine, I think, got so... Oh used as this, the indication of the book. What people didn't do then, a lot of people said, I'm not reading it. So they would make a lot of um, statements about the book without reading it. But it's bloody funny. And it's very, very insightful. You've got some amazing insights into our 
our kind of social internet media obsessed culture. You've got stuff into BEE. You've got so many into sex, into Brazilians. I mean, there's everything in this book. It's like someone just ranting off or raving off or surmising things. And it's a very, very thorough look at a kind of a, a girl who finds herself in South Africa and, and the things she thinks about. But I want to read a little part of chapter one called A Slip of the Thumb. And Lorato writes, social media has infiltrated our lives to such an extent that when we attend events, the first thing we ask is, what's the hashtag? In fact, what is the hashtag for this? <laughs> that is if it's not stated on the invitation already. You need to complain about bad service from a bank or a cell phone company. No need to write a long letter to Hello Peter. Just blast the bastards on Twitter and tag the company. Someone being openly racist at a restaurant that's a lot of Cape Town, um, take out your camera phone, film them, and post it on, post it on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and, Insta and, um, sorry, and Instagram have given the power back to the people. Okay, user to be exact. That is why these platforms are so powerful. They give ordinary people power. And I wondered when you had written that, if you imagined, <laughs> in a way, how much power you were actually inadvertently being conscious, because like that whole social, social media thing, especially Twitter, really managed to turn yeah. for however long on you. You became the trending topic. Yeah, I trended for three days. Andy Murray had to win uh, the Open for me to be- To stop trending. To stop trending yeah. Which is a great thing. I mean, most people love to trend, but I'm sure while the daggers were going in, you must have had a bit of a, wow, I wrote all this stuff, but I didn't actually realize the power that the stuff no, actually I, has. No, I didn't, I didn't. Look, here's the thing. The f f fact that the first chapter is about social media and that's how the, the, the book became big is, is, is interesting. You, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to make the connection as to you know, how the, the, the energies, it's alchemy. I couldn't have done anything about it. Okay, that's the first part. The, the second part is that I did write this book. And for everybody who was angry at me, people said to me, why, this Lirata, she must come out, we want her. And I was like, well, why would I go on Twitter when I have an entire book? Do, do you know what I mean? I have an, enti I have an entire body of work. This, this 15 minutes of creating this meme about me is all the leverage you're going to get. But I'm going to be on television. I'm going to be on radio. I'm going to be in magazines. So I, I don't need to start a tour. I'm not interested in one. What I wanted to do, Mel, was somebody said to me, are you not worried about your book being too focused on the time? So the reason I started becoming a writer, I read Anne Frank when I was 13, living in uh, Soweto. And I was trying Anne Frank to, wasn't living in Soweto, no. though. And I was trying to imagine this girl from Germany during the Holocaust, if she had any idea that this girl at the tip of Africa would read the book, however many years later, and make a, a human connection. And so I don't care if my, 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 my book... Uh, is not relevant. I'm not thinking about 
50 years. Nina Simone said artists are there to reflect the times that they live in. And my book is about reflecting the reality of being a South African right now. I just happen to be black and I happen to be woman, a woman. But the, the, the thread in the book is that we're all the same. We all want the same things. We want people to love us. We want our children to grow up in a safe environment where you're not worried about your bag or crime or this. You want to be in a place where you are recognized, where there's equality. Those things have nothing to do with the color of your skin or, or where you're from. And so that was the book talks about blackness and whiteness and what it looks like and all these other things. But ultimately, we, we want the same things. That's what I want people to go away with when you're done with the book. Well, you know, they say um, when people react so defensively and angry, you're really hitting sensitive points. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it's interesting how much sensitivity, I think, emerged around these sacred kind of areas where people might be, have been saying these things in the background, black people amongst themselves, definitely white people in their own little way, yeah. um, but how much anger and then in a way how much dialogue started happening. That's exactly what I wanted to do because I was talking to my boyfriend yesterday who was fighting with somebody at a bar. Not physically, no, 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 like a uh, discussion. And he was saying, this person said, yeah, but your girlfriend, the things she was saying uh, were terrible. And he was like, okay, was she wrong though? And the guy was like, no. So, <laughs> and you know, and, and the thing is, Mel, is when People are told their truth. It's like one time somebody called me fat, and I came home, and I was like, and I think I write about it in the book, and I was like, oh, this is going to be fat. My mom was like, why are you? My mom was a Capricorn. She was like, she doesn't care. She was like, why, why is this a problem? And I realized I thought I was fat. So what she was doing was reiterating something I already felt about myself. And so the inadequacies that black people have felt, the shame, the not being good enough, all I did was just raise, like, I, I raised it, you I raised brought it out. It, yeah. And um, in, in a sense, I'm grateful that I did. Uh, somebody was asking me if I would have written it the same way. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> not because I regret it or because I'm suddenly more polite and I don't swear anymore. No. Mm. Uh, but because a lot has happened in my life and I would have probably put it differently. But I'm a writer. You know yeah. how it is, Mel. You're never satisfied. You're always going to tweak and change and change and change forever. Uh, but the fact that people are now talking about it, that, uh, you know, almost a year later, people are still talking about black service providers and is there mentorship. And I'm happy people are talking because I understood the moment the book left me and Peng and Random House had it, it was no longer mine. Yeah. And it's done very well. I mean, that's the other thing. It actually has done really well. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to The Maid. I love Ooh, this yes, chapter. Oh, yes, yeah. A lot of people love this I chapter. I love this chapter because I have had so much, like, internal dialogue about the political correctness of what I call the woman who works for me. Mm. And The Maid, in my mind, has always been a swear word. And like the domestic helper has sounded a little bit too uptight. My friend has been very inaccurate because why would you pay your friend to clean up after you? Mm. <laughs> and so it's been a hard one in my mind. And the one thing that I, I mean, I'm going to read a little bit something else, but 
this part I really related to, which means I might be black. <laughs> um, it's only recently that I realized how dumb it is for me to employ someone to clean my house but feel so guilty that my house is dirty that I tidy up. I do it. Every Sunday night, I go and tidy my house before Christina comes. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't want her to think that I'm so untidy. Yeah. So the house is getting worse and worse on Saturday. I mean, it's looking like an absolute pit. Sorry, I'm not that dirty, but it's just like the weekends come, the kids have been messing around, and there I am on late su Sunday night cleaning up. So when Christina comes, she goes, she's not such a bad umlungu. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. So, so um, you said that's black middle class guilt for you, but it's flippin' been my little issue, and it has. And I think a lot of people had it. So I, I, I now do book clubs when there's more than ten people. I go to whoever's house and I, I chat to the people. And there was one girl who was angry. She wasn't saying anything. There was fifteen black girls, and she was just waiting. The other girls were like, "Oh, it's so funny. It's so mm -hmm. this," <laughs> and she was just like. Pop -pop. She was going to be like Clint Eastwood. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I could just feel it. I was like, yo, yeah. no bulletproof vest, no nut for a black girl. <laughs> and she was just like, yeah, you said made is a word that is fine. It is not. You're making excuses for it. Wow, wow, wow. And, you know, I looked at her and I thought, one of the things I said at the beginning of that chapter is that a maid is a maid whether they're in America, they're in Europe, or they're here. I want but, to actually read this little yeah, part. Yeah. So let's talk frankly about why maid has become a swear word in South African vocabulary. Black people brace yourselves for impact. According to the dictionary, a maid is defined as a female domestic servant. Depending on where you are in the world, maids can look different. In America, for instance, generally this will be a lady from, say, Mexico. Donald Trump and <laughs> Kelly Osborne would agree here, even though this is a gross and unjust generalization. Yeah. How fortuitous of you to have seen that. In France, this person would be from Eastern Europe. And in Africa, this would be a woman from, say, Dipslut or Grassy Park, depending on where you live. Nowhere in the dictionary does the word maid refer to a race of people. But the way I see it, of course, mm -hmm. about 10 years into our democracy, black South Africans who had begun climbing the social and financial ladders started feeling guilty about having maids. Yes, white people, you're no longer the only ones suffering from middle class guilt. <laughs> The extent of our middle-class guilt as black people is so deep that many of us would rather spend hours sitting idly at exclusive books than be in the house when the cleaning lady is there. We find it too embarrassing to be lounging around while they work. Mm. And I add to that group. I am here today because Christina's there. <laughs> the only reason I accepted the invite was to get away from my maid. You know... I I still, so this, this girl who was angry at me said, so yeah, do you call her a maid? I said, no, I said in the book, I'm too chicken shit to do that. <laughs> so I still say help her, even though I think when you look at the, the, the reality of the word, it, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and I needed to write about it because that is such an interesting relationship, Mel. Yeah. You have, so the guy who runs the art fair, uh, the Joburg art fair, uh, Mantla Sibego, he was educated by the family that his mother worked for. And yet, when you put Mantla and his mother in the family, 
month is, is a bigger part of the white family than he is of the black family. You know, he's, he's been to Switzerland, he writes an art fair, he speaks with an accent, he went to private school. You could dip him in white and he could be white. And yet, and yet, he, he, he cannot fit in either because he's still black. And these women who, whose, whose kids have to see what it's like to be privileged and go back to the back room and then still have some kind of dignity with their kids, that's a difficult relationship. And one of my aunts, because the girl assumed that I come from this privileged background, and I was like, no, one of my aunts is still a helper. She cleans people's houses now. So it's, it's a difficult place for us to navigate whether we're white or we're black. I don't think it's harder or easier. And one of the things I talk about is even the language barrier with our domestic workers. Mm. Because I know for a lot of white people, you think, oh, maybe uh, Mavis doesn't understand because I speak English. No. Even me, as a black person, when I say Mavis, it's still the same. There's mm. still, and I think it's just a class thing. And class scares black people. It's scary. Mm -hmm. Because what happens when you transcend your race? What happens when you become a human being. And in many ways in South Africa, it's understood as what happens when you become white. White, yeah. Which is so crazy yeah. because to be educated and cultural and sussed and is not outspoken whiteness. is not white. And that's why it's unfortunate for the people who didn't want to read your book because you've got these amazing gems. And if they looked deeper, in the very same chapter as you speak about the maid, you also speak about racism, and you say some very powerful stuff, and I'm going to read that Thank now. you very okay, much. Sonny. I'm going to ask you to read just now, because I might um, be reading. No, I'm enjoying this. Okay. <laughs> so, so Lorata writes, <clears throat> racism can be a distraction from what truly needs to be done. As Toni Morrison once said, the function, the very, very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. That was Toni Morrison. Then Lorata says, we need to look at racist people the same way in which we regard stupid people. If you've ever encountered a truly stupid person in the true sense of ignorance, you never take anything they say seriously. You're always half listening and can be facetious without them even getting it. Racists are stupid. That is a fact. Rejecting labels and derogatory terms is taking back our power. But I'm proposing too much too soon, right? Forgive me. I guess it's easier to find a less emotionally explosive word for something already so incredibly awkward for you being a madam. So, I mean, this book, Lorado is shooting from the hip. She's calling everything what it is, the way she sees it. And I just think there were so many, there's so, there are not were, there are so many insights that you have into deep psychological things like racism, that it's a pity that uh, some people haven't given the book the chance to see that. I think one of the reasons why, Mel, by the way, thank you. Um, I think one of the reasons why is because I swear in the book, which you and I do anyway. A lot. A lot. <laughs> and uh, culturally, as a black person, it's not something that you do. I mean, if my dad was alive, he'd be like, Lerato, mind your language. Um, and I wanted to write the book the way people speak. You know, very few people say flip when they're angry. You know, most people reach 
for the one that starts with an F and ends with a K, you know? Um, and uh, so I think that's one of the reasons. But also, because I'm a journalist, you know, I've, I've written about health, I've been a motoring journalist, I, I edited Sunday Times Lifestyle, edited True Love, started Real Magazine, worked for Marie Claire, worked for Oprah. My thing is to take facts and present them in, the, in a way that they reach your emotions. And I wanted this book to be about the emotion as much as it is about facts. There are a lot of facts in there. When, when I started becoming too black in certain instances, my editor would bring me back and say, you've got to substantiate that. Mm. Um, and so I think, I, I, yes, I'm saddened by it, but I think the right people are reading it. Mm. I think there are people in here who would have never thought about reading this book who are going to come out and think, maybe I actually need to get this book. Maybe there's more. And look, listen, I'm going to make you laugh. It is ridiculous how much you're going to laugh. Like, it's... it's yeah, it's, it's stupid. I want you to turn to page 45. Okay. And, I mean, the thing is that, so, like, the people, so, so you initially had a big black backlash saying that you were, you were undermining black people, you were selling out and everything. But you make a lot of fun of white people in this book. Mm -hmm. okay? A lot. <laughs> and you show us people uh, quite a few things. And I would love you to read. You can choose as many as you like. It's called The 15 Things White People should know about black people reloaded. So the reason why I got the book, uh, Penguin, I, I, when I was leaving Sunday Times Lifestyle to go to work at, at True Love, I, uh, I decided, I had a column called Urban Miss, and I thought, I'm gonna write about whatever I want because it's my last column and they can't fire me. Uh, <laughs> and I thought I want to tell white people all the things I've thought about that I just was never brave enough to say, right? So it's, uh, I mean, there could be more, obviously. Um, so let me um, choose one. Let me choose one that, that, that uh, so what happened was then uh, Steve Connolly, the, the MD of, of Penguin, read this and asked me to write a book. And I wanted to bring uh, this, this column back in because of the impact it had. It's my most retweeted column. Uh, so, I, I think I should read two from there, hey? Yeah. I actually had chosen something from there, Mel. I do like the hair one, though. Can you do number one as well? Okay. I love number one. Okay. Look, I, I panned it to Melinda. That's how much <laughs> I love her. Um, okay, the, the first one is, yes, black people wash their hair. <laughs> <laughs> We can both laugh at it. <clears throat> uh, do I hear you ask how often? Yeah, because you thought about that too. As often as any other race. Every day for some, twice a week for others, or once a month uh, for another lot. I once attended, this happened. Oh, this really did happen. I once attended a dinner party of a girlfriend of mine who'd been my girlfriend for over a decade. I was the only black person there, and I think after a while, some of the guests forgot that I was black and got real comfortable. We were talking about something mundane when one of the northern suburb housewives uh, of Joburg, not here obviously, uh, <laughs> mid Chardonnay sip said, I just don't understand why black people don't wash their hair. I mean, what's that all about? Asking no one in particular. 
An awkward silence strangled the jovial mood. Sisokim Simanga, a writer and activist, calls this casual racism. This is what happens when you're black and able to make white people feel relaxed in your company. For whatever reason, whether it's because you speak so well uh, or have a similar interest, they forget that you're black. Suddenly, you're privy to conversations you would not have heard had you not been a different kind of black. In those moments, just as you're about to get lost in the euphoria of a non-racial South Africa, you are reminded that to some white people, you're just black. You could have the IQ of a genius, speak the type of English that would make the Duke of Edinburgh sound common, and have Mr. Darcy uh, table manners uh, from back in the 1800s. But in some white circles, being black is still considered to be barbaric, dangerous, and worthy of ridicule. For my white friends who stood up against this type of uh, racial prejudice, like my friend who'd, been invite, who'd invited me to dinner that night, this uh, uh, often can lead to alienation from the white community. Ruth First, the anti-apartheid activist, uh, journalist and wife of Joe Slovo, who was killed by the South African Security Police in 1982, writes about this in her memoir, uh, 117 days, 117 days. There was the good living that white privilege brought, but simultaneously complete absorption in revolutionary politics and defiance of all white values uh, of our own racial group. As the struggle grew sharper, the privileges of membership in the white group were overwhelmed by the penalties of political participation. Back at the dinner, my friend's brother, sensing my discomfort, tried to remind the northern suburbs chick that a black person was actually in the room. Um, <coughs> Loretto, so um, what do you think uh, of what, insert typical white female name said? Uh, I could feel my temperature rise at an alarming rate. I don't think anything. What followed was a disingenuous apology from her end and an irritated explanation about black hair from mine and an unfortunate and abrupt end to a perfectly wonderful evening. I felt bad for her. Uh, I felt bad for my friend, who must have felt very uncomfortable. She did not share her guest's views, but how often is it assumed that just because you are the same race, you share the same racist sentiments? For her to have been the lone voice of reason must have been very alienating. I can't wait until my friend is one of many instead of an anomaly behind the upper class white walls where racism is an open secret. In the same way that it is not cool for you to touch my hair or pull my dreads uh, because you simply cannot believe they're not extensions, ignorant statements about black people and their hair will make you look like a douchebag. I'm not saying don't be curious. By all means, be inquisitive about your fellow black people, but don't make ignorant generalizations based on racist assumptions. Fabulous. I mean... <laughs> Thank you. I, um, I worked at True Love magazine, and slowly as the years went by, there were like three white people, then there were two, and then there was me. And I kind of forgot I was white after a while. I'd go to parties and... 
always gravitate towards the black people. Mm. That was before I went to Cape Town and there are no black people. Yeah. Um, sorry, Cape Town. Um, <laughs> but I basically, I, I, you know, and, and so I learned a lot about black hair. But I was always amazed at how many people, white people, you'd see someone walk into the office and someone in marketing would come up to her and say, God, your hair's grown long, but all she's done is put a weave on over the weekend mm. and changed her braids to a weave. And I don't, you know, it would be amazing how little I realized white people would actually notice because there's no way in hell your hair would have grown, well, not yours particularly, because I know you don't do weaves or braids. Um, and do any of you even know what all those things are? Um, but it would be amazing to, to see the kind of just the, the, the throwaway ignorance, like the black people don't wash hair, oh my word, your hair's grown long, is that real tug, tug. A kind of sarky, um, gosh, now I've forgotten her surname, Bartman, kind of syndrome, where it's the kind of person who's out there to be displayed, but the person's actually sitting right next to you, and people have kind of, some people have kind of blocked ears or blocked eyes around these Yeah, I mean, that's why I say is there's no problem with you being curious. So um, I wear a lot of costume jewelry and, uh, you know, because it's cheap shit, you, they, they mm -hmm. give you allergic reactions. And so I get to the chemist in Parkview and I say, oh, you know, I have this rash on the back of my neck <laughs> and this well-meaning, oh, nice yeah. lady says, you know, I think it's your braids uh, <laughs> that you're irritating it. And I was like, no, that's my hair that's attached to me. That God. Said, oh, it wouldn't irritate me because it's mine. And, <laughs> and you could tell now she was trying to be like, oh, fuck. Now I've said it and I don't know how to take it back. And, mm. and I understood she was trying to have a conversation mm. about something she knows nothing about, about and I had to correct her so the next time she can ask even if she doesn't know are those braids are those dreadlocks but there's so much like I said there's so much we don't know and the first thing you need to do is just ask you know it's just it's just it's just ask I wanted to also read this one Mel really quickly it's yes. about language okay good I say this uh, everything in here basically happened so a whole lot of people hate me. Anyway, uh, so uh, once uh, while working at the Sunday Times, I had an exchange with a colleague about uh, one of our contributors. It went a little something like this. It's on page 53, email. Uh -huh. Her, do you know Sean lived in Japan? Me, oh, that's great. Her, yeah, hey, he's totally fluent in Japanese. Wow, that's amazing. That's me. Her, why is it amazing? I mean, he was there for six years. Me, well, it's amazing because you've been here all your life and you can't speak a word of Zulu. Yeah, this is a very sensitive uh, uh, place for white people. Yeah. I mean, it's, you've recently um, commissioned a mutual friend of ours to write a story about white people and speaking African languages, and I was one of the people interviewed. Mm. And I, you know, I mean, I did... Zulu won through UNISA, trying desperately to get my Zulu up to scratch, kind of gave it up after I did so much theory and I couldn't really speak. Mm. And, um, you know, I love to see myself as an integrated, very um, good South African, new South African, but I can't speak. Yeah, I, I think like... And, and that, it's a big, 
it's like a crazy thing. It's like people, oh yeah, he when he lived in six, for six years in Japan, of course he spoke, and that question of all you've lived here all your life, and there's almost just been these like doors closed in our minds, I'm talking about white people, of like, it's not necessary, or I'm so uncomfortable because I don't know how to speak, so I'll just pretend it doesn't exist. And that whole ostrich under the head syndrome. Yeah, and, and I also think just there's no interest. Yeah. I just think there's no interest. Um, and I think one of the reasons there's no interest is because we've devalued our languages even as black people. Yep. So how do you devalue something and expect somebody else to value it? And so one of the things I want to do is just say, you know, if you're not interested, say you're not interested. Yeah. But don't say you haven't had the opportunity. Mm. You know, you could befriend somebody who's black and... Mm. Uh, uh, or just and, even learn and how learn. to greet yeah, people. Exactly. Uh, but also, listen, I'm a sarky, fucking crazy Upstart. person. Yeah. <laughs> and what I, w what I want, and look, I talk about relationships and I want to go into relationships as well. And I talk about sex and I talk about friendship. Um, you uh, know, I'm actually looking at the time yeah. and we're heading towards those last 10 minutes. Yes. And I thought, because we could carry on talking and reading and then none of you would need to even read the book because yes. we're just going to read the whole book to you, which we hope you don't think that you've heard everything in here. I mean, it would be great if we opened um, the floor. There might be someone who is interested to ask Lorato something, and we'd love to hear from you. Don't be shy. Yes. Hello, my mother's alive. My, my father died three years ago. Uh, my mom is still very alive. When I had my book launch in July, um, uh, one of the people got up and they said, did your mother read the sex chapter? And what Sex chapter is something you've got about the book. Yeah. <laughs> you should never read that chapter in, in public, by the way. Because, yeah. And um, they said, was she not embarrassed by, by it? And um, like I said, I turned 37 last week. When my mom was my age, she was married with three kids. So she has a very deep understanding of the fact that I'm a grown-ass woman. You know what I mean? Like, she understands that my opinions are mine. Um, and she raised me to be a thinker. As a human being, I don't fit anywhere in particular. Uh, some black people find me to have, I mean, I lived in Cape Town for a year. I lived in Sri Lanka Bay. Um, uh, one of my close friends is Melinda. Um, and yet I come from so much. So I, I, I don't, I, I'm that black person that doesn't quite fit anywhere. Uh, but also, you never want to try me because I am ghetto and I will go a little bit like, what? <laughs> so she just, she's a wonderful human being. I think for somebody from that generation to raise somebody like me who can, who's black but stops, not stops being black, it's not always cognitive of my blackness, it's, it's more to my me being a human being. She's proud of the book. She read it in two days. She laughed really hard. And then she texted me. First she texted me, she said, uh, I'll say it in Zulu and then I'll translate it. She says, I'm reading, let's talk about sex, baby. Which means she's reading the chapter. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, mother. And she replied in Zulu and she said, in Kosa, and she said, don't worry, my child. I've lived a long life. <laughs> you know, and to be freed like that. My mother, my parents freed me. They freed me to see people. 
and for everything they got wrong, because they're human beings, for everything they got wrong, what they gave me was a sense of being an individual. There's nobody I can't sit next to and relate to them as a human being. And to have my mother be proud of this, look, I would have never written this if my dad was alive. I swear, I talk about getting waxes, and my dad would just have been like, what are you doing? Um, and, and so, in a way, his passing released me to do this. But I think, in the end, even though he wouldn't have read it, he would have been proud. And my, my mom, my sister, and my, and my brother love it, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. There was someone there? Yes. Right. Uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry. Um, this being Stellenbosch and uh, being the University of Stellenbosch grounds, um, one of the hottest debates around here is uh, the debate about language and the preservation of language. Um, and uh, you mentioned languages and where languages are going in this country. and. Um, uh, that most languages in this country suffer from our, our communal desire towards English. Um, what, what do you foresee for the, for the future for indigenous languages? So, um, after years of trying not to date broke journalists, I have now ended up with a journalist. And my boyfriend, <laughs> we are not making money. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping for PE executive, but alas. Um, and so he writes about rugby and cricket. He's a boy from the Eastern Cape, Wisconsin. And because he does that, he, like his team is the Blue Bulls on Saturday, we went to watch the Lions. And um, he, I'm, taking, I'm, long, I'm long-winded by the way, so I'm taking a long route to get into the point. And so he has a, a, a child with somebody else who's colored. And uh, so already there are strange things. He's a black man who's probably the country's biggest rugby and cricket writer. Like people know him from the Sunday Times. He's got a, a column in City Press. And he's got a, a, he's got a, a black boy who knows no cousin. Okay? And the truth of the matter is that when him and I start living together, it's not as if he's going to speak Kosa Azuli with us because we converse in English. So ultimately, this child is going to grow up identifying as Kosa, but having no understanding of Kosa. And what I said to him was, look, you're going to have a lot of guilt, but at the end of the day, if you're serious about it, you'll get a helper who speaks Kosa, I was going to speak to him, because you and I are not going to do that. Our friends are not going to do that. Our friends are white, Indian, and colored. You know, that's not how the, the present, I mean, the whole book is in English, you know? So I feel like we want to keep our languages, and we will, but we need to be able to understand that at some point along the way, it's not going to be as pure. Uh, what I ask for is that we don't think that not knowing English means you're stupid. Africans and black people get this a lot. Uh, there's a lot of fun that is made about how your accent is, when you're Africans or you're black, how you say certain things, and it's all linked to your intellect. Um, and you travel around France and everything is in French, and yet nobody says you're not smart. And I think that I don't mind us all speaking English, I think it's great, but I think as long as we stop attaching intellect to language, then people who are not fluent in English will feel as confident as those of us who are. 
because once you start to tell somebody that if they speak, if they're fluent in their language, remember all it is is somebody who's using, the reason why they're pronouncing everything wrong, they're using the rules of their language to communicate to you in yours. So essentially they're extending themselves for you. You need to have the grace to go, ah, so in Zulu this is a direct translation, in Afrikaans this is a direct translation, in Kosovo this is a direct translation, and then not laugh. Because you wouldn't do that whether if the person was Italian or German or whatever. And we just are so obsessed with, with intellect and English and language that we're losing sight of the fact that some of the smartest people in this country don't converse um, in English. And they're probably smarter than me, but people are most likely to listen to me because I sound the way I do. It's tragic. Okay, I'm going to and this is going to be the last question, and it's your question because we are running out of time. Sorry. Thanks. You say the book is confrontational. Now, we always choose when to be confrontational, and maybe I'm just being limited, but to my mind, we confront when we want to dig really deeper, or we confront because we're just smart to fight. You know? um, I pick up from just the way you've talked about the book, and I, I've only read parts of the book, I haven't read all of it, um, that with you the intention is, is a little bit of both. What, what was your intention when you used um, so vigorously um, your ability to be confrontational? Well, I, thank you so much. In fact, when you, when you use the word intention, when I st before I started writing, I wrote down uh, a thing in my journal about my intention for the book. I, I didn't want to start it without understanding what I wanted people to feel when they were done. So I needed to decide that before I even started. So the first thing was that I didn't want a book that would park on the shelves and nobody would read. I wanted a book that people would read. Um, and so one of the things I do outside of, of editing and radio is that I do corporate work, I think Mel does the same. And one of the clients I've been working with is National, uh, the National Book Fair. And they were, taking, they were giving us um, um, stats about the reading culture in South Africa, particularly amongst black people. And 14% uh, of black South Africans read, okay, right? It's scary. There are 50 million South Africans, over 50 million South Africans, 80% of those are black, and only 14% of them read. And they then extrapolated some more, 5%, only 5% read leisure books. Most of them are reading textbooks. Okay, so I understood, people told me all the time, forget about it, nobody's going to read the book. And so I wanted to jolt people, okay, because I had some serious things to say. But to jolt you, I needed to get your attention, and I was not going to get your attention by being nice and not swearing, so I needed to come hard at you. But once I'd got your attention, I then wanted you to look inward. You see, South Africa, uh, a human rights atrocity happened in this place, which we can't hide, in South Africa. Okay. So you cannot treat a, 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 a problem that you have not diagnosed. You don't go to the doctor. You, you need to tell the doctor what is wrong with you for him to tell you what you need to do. So part of the confrontation is you going to the doctor I mean, I was looking, Riyad Musa, who's a comedian, often he says, he tells the stroke of somebody walking into his surgery with a Coke can stuck in the anus. And they needed to say, 
well, how did it get up there? You know, it's embarrassing, but you have to say it. And that's what my book is about. Part of the confrontation is so that you can say what is wrong with you as a human being, as a South African, so that you can then start to come up with solutions. But what we're doing in this country, we're coming up with solutions without actually confronting the things about us that are not working. We somehow hope that we're going to tele telepathically understand each other and then everything is gonna sort itself out and it's not going to. The way it's going to happen is for, for people to say they were upset, they were hurt, or I didn't understand, my parents kept me out. Um, and so what you thought was me being racist was me being a teenager, not understanding. Uh, Mel, you grew up, your mom was racist. You said this openly and you ended up working with black people. So you made the conscious effort, but you have to say my mom was racist. If you're trying to pretend like she's not, you're being disingenuous. That is your history. You come with it. So we all each come, come with our things. And once we've talked about them, we, we can move forward. And you can't move forward without being honest. And so the confrontation is, I don't want to live anywhere else. I like this place. I like it even with everything that we have wrong. Uh, and yet I know now more than ever, we're not going to progress unless we're honest about where we are. And we're not in a good place. We're not in a good place. And we need to be honest about it. And all of us have the same worries, whether we're black or white, of losing this place that we love with great weather, you know, this sensational place that we've been given. Can we protect it and, and show that we care, you know? And I care, that's why I wrote this. I, didn't, I, I don't make money from this, you know? This is for the soul. I think that's, the, that's a great way to end. It's been lovely having all of you. you. I wish we could talk a lot longer. Um, I'm sure the book's out on sale out, outside. I hope so. I, I hope. I think it is. You think so? Oh, okay. Yes, it so is outside. Way. And I will be signing as yep. well. So I'm here. Uh, thank you all. This, Mel, thank you for this. This was fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody.